So as technology increases, I would suggest our patience decreases. Things that used to take days, weeks, months, now happen in seconds. And we come to expect that. Life on demand. We're annoyed when it takes two days for something to be shipped from California arrives on our porch. But I would suggest, suggest to you the things that matter most in life, they don't work that way. They're not instantaneous. They're not on demand. It's process. It's diligence. It's discipline. It's time. Certainly that's true with the Christian faith. While it's true we are saved in a moment, it is a process of time, a lifetime, to grow and mature in our walk. But it's actually more than that. One of the most common themes in the New Testament is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not a promise that this will be your best life now. The hope of the gospel is not a life of health and wealth and prosperity. It's not. As a matter of fact, the hope of the gospel is there is a promise of something more magnificent than you can possibly even imagine, but it won't happen in this life. You're going to get to the finish line, and all you can do is believe by faith that God tells the truth and that the fulfillment of that promise is yet to come. That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews has issued pretty strong warning concerning Christians that don't seem to grow up. They just remain immature. He's even wondering, is it possible you don't really believe? But then starting in chapter 6, verse 9, the tone changes dramatically. It goes from this stern, almost harsh warning to much more pastoral. He says, verse 9, but beloved. This is the only time the writer of Hebrews uses the term beloved. Dear friends, it's a real shift in emotion here. We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So even though he's offered this warning, he does have a concern. In speaking to these people, he's saying, but for most of you, we do believe, you truly believe. You have been changed by the power of Jesus. That we are wanting you to experience more of that which goes with your salvation, what we would call the hope of the gospel. Why does he believe that? Verse 10, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. 
What he's saying is the evidence of your life makes it clear that you do believe. You are a person of faith. God is changing you. Most scholars think the reference to the saints is a reference to the early stages of persecution. People are being marginalized, perhaps some people being imprisoned, awaiting execution. In the ancient world, oftentimes, the only way someone in prison had the necessities of life would be if someone brought them adequate food, water, and care. So imagine this. These people are marginalized, perhaps even imprisoned. And their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ actually out themselves as fellow Christians just in order to minister to these people, to serve them, to take care of them. They put their own lives at risk. How much faith and courage does that take? And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, you've clearly demonstrated that you're in, that you believe, that this matters to you. You're committed to it. It's this idea that... that uh, they need to take, take uh, great security in the reality of their salvation. Coming out of the early part of Hebrews 6, it's easy for people to get their insecurities stirred all up again. Think of it this way. If this morning someone gave you 10, ten compliments, but one person criticized you, what would you stew about all afternoon? It's the criticism. So you come across 10 passages that clearly teach your security in Christ. And then you bump into Hebrews 6, and suddenly people are tormented by the thought that maybe that's me, maybe I'll fall away, maybe I won't get in. At some point, we recognize we do believe. Some people say, well, you can't really know for sure. Yes, you can. 1 John 5 says, these things are written in order that you may know, emphatic, that you have eternal life. You know that. You know what you believe. You know your life. You know the outflow of your life. You know the ways God is growing you and changing you. At some point, you settle the issue. And you begin to grow and mature. There's no reason to spend the next 10 years still fearful about whether or not I'm in or out. To use the agricultural illustration at the end of our text last week in verses 7 and 8, it's true the farmer plants the seed and there's a waiting period to see what's going to grow. Is it a crop or is it weeds? But when a farmer gets to July... He's not still guessing. He's not still wondering. It's corn. Look at it. It's corn. And the implication of that is then get busy. There's a harvest coming. So it's wrestling and it's looking in the mirror and realizing, I do believe. I know I believe. And I'm in. And I see the evidence of Christ all over in my life. So let's work through our insecurities. Let's settle the issue and let's move on. There's a lot we need to learn. We've got to grow. We've got to get stronger. Life can get very, very hard. 
That's the concern of the writer. These people are headed into severe persecution. There's much more to learn and to grow and to understand. And so he identifies really what James says, a faith that saves is a faith that works. And all you have to do is look at your own life and realize I can see all the ways God is at work in me. I know I'm in. So let's move on. Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize, experience the full assurance of hope until the end. The same diligence. How much faith, how much belief, how much courage did it take for these people to take care of their fellow brothers and sisters, whatever was going on in a very dangerous culture? He says, apply that same diligence to believing the truth, to holding on to it, to experiencing this hope of the gospel to the end. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Basically, what he just said is not, this is your best life now. It's not, hang in there, it's a life of prosperity. He's hang in there, embrace this hope all the way to the finish line. What's implied in that is you're not going to see the fulfillment of the promise. You're not going to experience everything that your soul longs for in this life. That's why you hope all the way to the finish line. Believing that God tells the truth and God will fulfill his promise in the life to come. That's the hope of the gospel. Verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish. This word sluggish is the same word we had in chapter 5, verse 11, translated dull of hearing. It's the idea of being lazy, of being unmotivated. So don't be sluggish about this. Don't be lazy or unmotivated about it. But imitators of those who through faith, that's belief, and patience. Literally, patience is long-suffering. So this idea of long-suffering, of patience over time, it's not instantaneous, it's not life on demand, it's long and it's hard. So you believe, and you hang in there. Through faith and patience inherit, which means basically just experience the promise. So he's reminding us that the hope of the gospel is ultimately in the world to come. This life can get hard, it can get confusing, it can get painful, it can break your heart again and again. So what do you offer people that are headed into severe persecution? You offer them hope that no matter what happens, what lies ahead for you is glorious. And so what he says is imitate the great heroes of the faith who demonstrated belief and long-suffering all the way to the finish line. Verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by 
himself. So the prime illustration is Abraham. Abraham would have been a hero of faith to these people. So he's the example of one to imitate. God made a promise to Abraham when he was living in a relatively modern, safe city to pack your bags and to move. Move to a place I will tell you later, and just trust me. But here's what I tell you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will multiply you and make you a great nation. And out of your seed will come one who will bless the nations of the world. Abraham, with remarkable faith, agrees. He agrees. The idea of God swearing by himself picks up the idea that in the ancient world, they didn't sign contracts, but rather two people got together and they made an oath, an agreement. But part of the agreement was that you would pledge an oath by someone of higher authority or higher rank than you. The idea was, if I fail to keep the commitment, someone with more authority or power than me can hold me accountable and make me keep the agreement. So when God made a promise to Abraham, who's higher than God? Answer, no one. So the only option God had is he made an oath by himself, that he would hold himself accountable to keep the promise. Verse 14, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. So the promise was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's re-upped again in Genesis 15. Abraham goes 10 years, and nothing has happened. God promised no children, nothing. So Abraham's wife comes up with the idea, how about you sleep with a handmaiden? She'll give you a child, we'll count that one. God shows up and says, we're not going to do it that way. I made a promise, I'll keep the promise, just trust me. So he waited 15 more years. Now just stop and think about this. This is not instantaneous. This is not life on demand. This is God made a promise and you wait without a child for 25 years until humanly speaking it was virtually impossible for the promise to be fulfilled. But eventually God keeps his promise and Abraham has a son whom they name Isaac. You get to Genesis 22, and God asks Abraham to take this one and only son up onto the mountain and to sacrifice him for God with unbelievably remarkable faith. Abraham agrees. He obeys. The text is clear. He was fully 
willing to go through with it, and God stops him. And God says, Abraham, now I know you trust me. You won't hold anything back. We also understand that was but a picture. If you're horrified by that picture, don't forget that's only a shadow of what did actually happen when God himself would offer his own son on that same mountain in order to provide our salvation. But for Abraham, God uttered the words that are quoted in our text in verse 14. That God once again re-upped the promise. Abraham, I made a promise to you, and I swear by myself that I will keep it. Verse 15, and so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So what does that mean? Well, it means 25 years after the promise, he finally had a son. But in order for him to become a great nation, for the promise to be fulfilled, he needed lots of grandchildren. So how long did he wait for the first grandchild? 60 more years. 60 more years. 25 for his first son. Another 60 years, shortly before his death. Abraham has a grandson. Abraham never saw the fulfillment of the promise. He just saw little glimpses. He would go to his grave believing by faith. God tells the truth. He'll do it. But he did not see it in his lifetime. Did he become a great nation? Yes, he did. Through his seed did the Messiah come and provide a salvation that would change the nations of the world. Yes. Did God keep his word? Yes, he did. Did Abraham see it? No, he didn't. He only saw it with eyes of faith. He just believed that God tells the truth. Verse 16, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. That's what I mentioned before. Verse 17, Then in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? We learned this earlier in Hebrews. You are. You are. What the text just said is in order for you to have even more to believe. To show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. Interpose, which means guaranteed, with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible, not difficult, impossible for God to lie. What are the two things? God made a promise. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. God also made an oath. He swore by himself. Now stop and think about that. 
There's no reason God had to make an oath. He's God. He's not accountable to anybody else. But the text tells us God did that for our sake. In order to say, I made a promise and I swore an oath. Two unchangeable things. In order to convince you it is impossible for me to lie and I made a promise. And I'm asking you to believe the promise all the way to the finish line. Because you're not going to see it in this lifetime. You're going to take your last breath still believing that the fulfillment of the promise is yet to come. So there by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement. We would probably say every reason to believe, to take hold, grab hold of, hang on to the hope set before us. That phrase, taken refuge, it's an interesting phrase. It is the Greek used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to refer to what they called in the Old Testament the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were cities required by the Old Covenant law so that if someone accidentally killed someone else, they could flee into one of these cities of refuge and there they would be protected so that the person who was killed's family could not hunt you down, and kill you. So think about, these people are headed into persecution. They are going to be hunted down. They're going to be imprisoned. Some of them will be executed. So this imagery is really powerful. That in this life, we don't expect our best life now. We don't expect prosperity. This is going to be hard. You flee to the city of refuge. In this case, it's our salvation. Understanding that we need that now, and there's a promise for the world to come. Now, for us this morning, it's unlikely someone is hunting you down to kill you. But we have our own stuff. We have our own stuff that breaks our heart, that gives us pain, that causes us struggle and despair. Life can be really, really hard. And there can be a lot of things that just make no sense to us. The promise is not if you trust Jesus, those things are all going to work out. The promise is a place of refuge that you go believing at the end of the story. The promise will be fulfilled, and it will be magnificent. But for now, you just have to trust me. I don't lie. I tell the truth. That's what God is saying. We have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement, every reason to take hold of, grab hold of this hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. What is it that keeps us from drifting? 
He talked about this in chapter 2, that we understand and believe the truth. We learn that we have to practice it. We have to train in it. We have to get better at it. We keep learning, we keep growing, and we keep getting stronger. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not instantaneous. It's not an app on your phone. It takes time. It takes practice. It takes training. But you become stronger and stronger in your faith and your belief. You find your refuge in your salvation today. But you anchor down to this hope of a promise that one day it will be everything your soul longs for today. But not now. Not today. Steadfast and sure and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This whole idea of the veil and behind the veil is very difficult for us to understand. It would have been extremely powerful for them. Imagine as a child, growing up and being taught that the very presence of God existed in the Holy of Holies, a compartment in the temple that was separated by a thick, heavy veil from the holy place. And understanding if anyone went behind the veil, they would be struck dead with the exception of the high priest, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. The absolute terror in their hearts of thinking about going behind that veil was powerful for them. And suddenly along comes Jesus, the ultimate high priest, who makes propitiation for sin, who offers the uh, atonement for sin, and the veil is torn, and through Jesus we have access directly into the presence of God, something that previously was unimaginable. And so what the writer is saying, even today we have this confidence that we go boldly right into the presence of God through Jesus. He has already accomplished that and is seated at the right hand of God. We live in the not yet. The best is yet to come. But even now, we've been granted unimaginable privileges to enter directly, boldly, confidently into the presence of God to be there for us in our hour of need. And then he shifts the discussion back to Melchizedek a rather puzzling figure that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. So for this morning, as we process this text, we need to settle. Do we believe or don't we? What I would say is for the vast majority of you, just look at your life. Look at all the ways God has changed you and manifests his presence through you. At some point, our own insecurities need to get set aside. We just simply believe 
God tells the truth. I know what I believe. I'm in. Can't spend the rest of our lives wrestling with our own insecurities. Settle it and grow, learn, grow, practice, train, move on. This is a hard world. It's going to break your heart. There's a lot more you need to learn, a lot more you need to understand, a lot more strength you need. Let's move on. Let's grow. Let's mature. Let's get ready. But it takes time. It takes, it takes learning. It takes growing and practicing and training. But we also have to understand the hope of the gospel is that everything you long for will be realized, but not in this life. One of the things that really messes us up in this life is we are determined to embrace what I refer to as this let's make a deal theology. Most people say they don't believe that until something drops out of their world and suddenly you hear it. I thought we had a deal. I thought we had a deal, God. I thought the deal was if I'm a good boy, if I'm a good girl, then you make everything work out. I thought this was our best life now. I thought the promise was a life of health and wealth and prosperity. I've been a really good boy, and now the bottom drops out of my world, and I feel ripped off. I feel like I kept my end of the deal, and God didn't keep his end of the deal. To which God says, I didn't make that deal. I didn't make that deal. Just read the book. There's nowhere where God promises that deal. We're just setting ourselves up for heartache. The Scriptures couldn't be more clear. This is a sin-cursed world. This is a battleship. Man, it gets really hard. It gets confusing. It gets heartbreaking. And part of what we understand is the ultimate hope of the Gospel is not here and now. We will make it to the finish line holding on with all of our strength to the belief that God made a promise and He'll keep the promise. But we will not see it realized in this life. What do you tell a group of people that are heading into severe persecution? Hey, have faith. This is your best life. Now, let's smile more. Or do you tell them, hey, this is a life of health and wealth and prosperity. You just need more faith. Or do you remind them that this is going to get really hard? Jesus told you it would. So you need to have the strength, the discipline, the diligence, the faith to believe. To believe that God promised and it's impossible for God to lie, to make it to the finish line with all your strength hanging on to a promise that God will do what he said he would do. But you won't see that realized until the life to come. For now, we find our refuge in him. And in the hardest moments of life, we just have to believe that Christ is enough.
Our Father, we are thankful that you tell us the truth. But God, we're sobered. We'd kind of like to hear a message that if we trust you, everything's going to work out. It's going to be smooth sailing. But God, that's not what you tell us. This is a sin-cursed world, and this is battle. It's a cosmic battle. The hope of the gospel is our belief that you tell the truth, that you would not lie to us. And right to the finish line, we will cling to that. And we will believe that what lies ahead is more magnificent than we could even begin to comprehend. God, until that day, we find our refuge in you. We want to say with all of our hearts, we do believe today Christ is enough. In whose name we pray.